from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Genesis 3 world that's very present, very temporal, is that we have a hard time having a long-term perspective. Uh, you know, if you look at Scripture, Scripture basically says that your life is 70 years in a vapor. It's not very long, right? If you lived over 70 years, good for you. You know, I mean, you, you're kind of, you know, you're playing with house money. You know, the Lord's kind of taking care of you. Um, but in reality, our lives, if you look at the time of things, it's really, it's just a small time, Right? And it's really hard to have a long-term perspective while we're in the middle of things, boots on the ground, present, temporal, we're locked in, we're, you know, we're going to work every day, we're raising our families, and it's just hard. I mean, for those of you that, that have raised children, um, when you were raising kids and you're hugging on that baby, did you think, well, this, one day this kid's going to be an adult? You know, you just don't. You, you, just, you think one day that's going to happen, but in the here and now, that doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen. And then suddenly you turn around and your kid's on the wedding altar getting married and you're like, where did time go, right? Um, we just don't have long-term vision when those moments are in front of us. You know, Jill and I, one of the things that we did as we were raising our kids was we actually thought questions out like, is this attitude they're doing right now, is this going to be cute when they're 17, right? So the moment when our kid decides to be a brat or whatever, we'd be like, oh, that's really cute right now. But at 17... She's a punk. I mean, you know, right? So uh, we had to, you know, that's how we thought about things just because we believe in long-term thinking that way. But it's also hard in other things. You know, if you lose your job or you lose a, you lose a close relationship, you know, whether through death or uh, something terrible happened, uh, a friendship breaking up, it's really hard to see how this could work out for your good, right? It's just, it's challenging. And most certainly... Some of the things that are hard is when injustices happen to us that are real injustices and or things that seem to shake our world and nations all around. I mean, um, it's hard and it's tough to pick our head up out of the, out of the present and have a long-term perspective because we just don't have eyes to see that. We just don't. So you, you might, you might wonder, and I, and I know this is true of our church because I've, I've talked to so many of you throughout the last three to four years. Um, and I know the wondering, the, the, the wrestling match that's gone on is, okay, so there's all these theories that we read about on social media about what happened in the last three years. Some could be blatantly false, some could be partially true, some could be completely true. And the question that people ask to me a lot is, how does God see all this? What's he going to do with it? And I find people getting their hearts anxious over what they're reading or what they're believing or what they're seeing because there's, there's, they don't, they don't see long term, right? You might struggle with a past moment when, when somebody wrongfully hurt you, right? I know people in our church that they had family members that were wrongfully hurt and it was illegal. And the criminal has never been caught and has never been proven guilty. Right? How do you wrestle with those things? Right? How do you deal with these injustices that might go on? And how does God see those things? And will God ever deal with those things? Right? Or, or what about, what about like big things, right? I mean, I, 
I'm a, I like to think about things globally because I like to work with guys around the world and like to talk to those guys about the gospel work. And, and when you hear about some of the atrocities that some of the governments are doing on their people, you ask yourself, like, okay, what, how, do, how does God see this? How is God going to work these things out? And does God work these things out? Right? You think of all the, the world wars that we had in the, in the 20th century, and how does God navigate through that stuff? And how does he work through those things? Will he ever deal with the injustices that are real, that really did happen? And that's one reason why, Christian, I believe God gave you the Bible. It's one reason why the Bible has got to become a, a centerpiece and the most precious thing that you have in your home, in your heart. Because what the Bible does, it gives us perspective. The Bible gives us a chance to look through in the eyeglass of biblical history and see how God worked in his people, through his people, for his people, and how God worked against his enemies. Right? So it gives us this perspective. So you could have like a Jeffrey Joe going through a flooding and just say, oh, it's okay, brother. We trust the God who stops the storms. And you can feel no uh, hypocrisy in it. It's very real. It's not, it's a settled disposition of hope. Right? Well, that's one reason why I believe we have the book of Nahum. Because the book of Nahum is a history lesson. It's a great story. And here's what we're going to learn in this book. It's on your big idea. It's in your notes. It'll come up on the screen. God is a jealous and loving God. He will always work for his people. He will always execute justice on his enemies. I'm using words, always, for a reason. God is a jealous and loving God. He always works for his people. And he will always execute justice on his enemies. Now just let that, as you're reading it, let that be a settlement in your soul, just to to calm you down over things that you've had happen to you that are real. Things that you've seen going on in our world that are real, that, that we don't have answers for. And let's settle in, because what we learn in the book of Nahum is that God loves his people, and God will take vengeance on all of his enemies, and not one will be left undone, and all injustices will be made right, all of them, right? So let's stand together, and let's read Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? 
His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of all the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut off and passed down. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And I will break his yoke from you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved images, the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave and you are, and for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we so desperately need you to open our eyes to the truths that are found in this great book and the history lesson that we're about to embark upon. And it can only happen by your Spirit helping us see the power of the risen Christ. So this morning, Father, would you help your people fall in love with you more? Be more grateful for your work on their behalf? Would you draw people that aren't your people to be your people? To help them see that wrath is coming for them if they don't repent and turn to Christ? But Father, would you give us peace? Would you help us to see Jesus? And Lord, you know my need. You know our church's need. Uh, Sustain me as I preach and help our people as we have ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, Nam was a prophet who had been exiled with the people of Israel to Assyria in 722 BC. In our previous studies of the minor prophets, if you've been with us, you'll remember that they were in Assyria because Israel had disobeyed and rebelled against God, and God planned to discipline them by sending a foreign army, the Assyrian army, to come and take them out of their land in Israel and bring them into uh, into Nineveh and into Assyria. And last week we studied the prophet Micah, the first minor prophet who seems to have lived through the attack on on Israel. In Nahum, we are about 80 to 100 years after this has happened. And Nahum is on the scene in the city of Nineveh, Assyria's capital city as an exile in the land and in the nation of Assyria. And in that nation, the Lord gives him an oracle or he gives him a vision about the coming destruction to the Assyrians. So this is a, this is a prophecy concerning a people group that is not God's people to the Assyrians about another people group, the Babylonians coming in and eradicating the Assyrians from off the face of the earth. Now, Nahum wrote his prophecy in an unusual way. He wrote it in a poem. Now, you can look in your Bibles, and you'll notice how it's in poetic form, right? This book has been widely seen by scholars. In in all the study that I did this week on this, this is what continues to come out. No matter where, if a scholar believes the intent of the book or not, every scholar believes this is some of the most beautifully written prose ever written in the history of man. So when you read the book... 
of Nahum. You've got to read it like poetry. And the other thing that scholars agree upon is the prophecy that Nahum gives absolutely came true because we can prove it in history. And we're going to do that today as we look at God's word together. That the events predicted in Nahum happened in 612 BC. Now what we're going to do this morning is like we've done with every other one of these books is give a flyover and just kind of de- dip into some moments so we can see the, some of the alliteration, some of the word plays, some of those things that go into the poetry of the book. So start with me by looking at your first point, which is the love of God and the wrath, the love and the wrath of God. Now we are confronted in the early verses of Nahum <clears throat> with the words of God that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He, his way is in the whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now the theme of the book of Nahum is basically the God of the universe loves his people and he will take vengeance on any adversary of his people and any enemy of his. He is full of love, but he's also full of wrath. Now I say that these words confront us because in most theological circles you run in, in America in particular or in the Western world, you're going to find people struggling with these two ideas of God being simultaneously being side by side. That God is a God of love and he's a God of wrath. So what we have a tendency to say is the Old Testament is a book of wrath. The New Testament is a book of grace. And we think that because we say in the Old Testament we get the God of justice in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we get the God of grace. And that means that God did away with his justice after he came in the New Testament. Well, that would not be understanding our Bibles very well. Because throughout the book of Deuteronomy in particular, you can read about God's grace and his love and his mercy toward his people. You can read in the book of Exodus of God saving his people of no work of their own. You can read all throughout the kings and the prophets of God continually going after his people because he loves his people. Yet, you will also see the God of wrath taking out vengeance upon the the enemies of his people. You'll also see in the New Testament the promised day to come that the God of wrath will indeed show up and any enemy of his he will cast into the lake of fire. Right? So you... So it's, we're confronted with this because Nam does something fascinating. He puts us on the razor's edge of God's character. See, the beauty of God is that God is the lion and the lamb. That he is the mighty warrior rejoicing over you with loud singing, yet the mighty warrior who comes riding on a white horse and destroys all of his enemies with one word. See, that, that's the God that you're dealing with. As they would say in the, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, he's not a tame lion. We want God to be in our nice little tidy boxes. And so we, we have a tendency in our world to think of God being the God who, you know, pats us on the back. He encourages us. When we fall down, he talks about our boo-boo and he picks us up off the ground and then he gives us a little cinnamon stick so we can put it in our drink and we can have a nice little cup of cinnamon at the end of our night and then God pats us on the head as he puts us to bed and he says, sleep really good. Just like an old grandfather, right? That's how we think of God in our loving 
mentality. Yet, we think of that until somebody wrongs us. And the moment we're wronged, we want God to be Batman without the vigilante in him. Execute justice now. Right? That's what we want. But what Nahum does is something fascinating. Nahum says, God is perfectly loving and he's perfectly wrathful. He loves his people. That's why you see in the text words like jealous. He's going after any false lover. He's slow to anger toward his people, but he's filled with wrath. That's why you see words like avenging and wrathful and what by no means clear the guilty. See, we have this tension in the character of God that, to be honest with you, we've got to be really comfortable with. Really comfortable that it draws us in because God loves his people, will protect his people, will defend his people, but he will, he will also judge all of those who oppose him and who oppose his people. And all of this proves how wonderful and great and vast and even unexplainable at times God is. And it draws our hearts to him. Gregory Cook in his incredible commentary on Nahum wrote these words. God's fierce love for us kindles his jealousy when we give our hearts, souls, and minds to other loves. God's love also ignites his wrath against any who would draw us away from him. If God did not care for our hearts when when our heart, when our hearts are away from him or when we adulterously give our hearts to the world, he would not love us. If God did not care that the world, the flesh, and the devil attempt to seduce us away from him, he would not love us. If God could watch us suffer grievous injustice without punishing evil, he would not love us. The notion of a love without jealousy and vengeance cannot survive a thorough biblical examination. It is a concept lacking passion or power. It is apathy masquerading as a virtue. I mean, ladies, just for a moment, imagine if some false lover came in to take you away from your home and your husband didn't rise up to defend you. Did he love you? That's the picture that you have in Nahum. A God of love and a God of wrath. So the book of Nahum basically had stories, and we know what happened. Israel had disobeyed God. They forgot their God. They became idolatrous, immoral, greedy, unjust. The the wealthy were mistreating the poor. Their rulers were running roughshod over their people. And God promised that he would exile them from that land in Israel as an act of discipline because God wanted their hearts. And God had tried everything to get them to turn. He had sent locusts. He had sent drought. He had, he had, you know, emptied their storehouses, yet they still would not repent. And God's patience finally ran out in 722 BC when the Assyrian army came and ransacked the nation of Israel and exiled them to Assyria. So you can only imagine, and we're going to talk about this more, how poorly the people of God were treated in Assyria. And now during Nahum's time, God comes in to say to, to say to Assyria, guess what, Assyria? Your time is up. I'm, I'm going to send Babylon, and they're going to eradicate you from the face of the earth. So the logic of the oracle of Nahum is basically this. Assyria, God has had enough. He's coming after you. 
and nothing can stop him. You'll notice in chapter 1, the poetic language that he uses to describe like a moment when God is coming down to the earth and the earth bows down to God, that he dries up the seas and the rivers, that the mountains quake before him and the hills melt and you cannot stand before him. But then he says to Israel in chapter, in verse 7, but Israel, your God is coming for you. He is good. He's a great refuge to those who trust in him. And he will make complete waste of your adversaries, speaking of the Assyrians. See, that's how God can be both loving for his people and wrathful at the same time. Now let's look at the next point, which is the Assyrian captivity and destruction. The nation, the nation of, the empire of Assyria is a fascinating one. They were one of the first wonders of the world. I asked one of our history teachers uh, in our church just to give me a rundown of things that she thought was uh, crazy about the nation of Israel. And here's some of the things that she, or the nation of Syria, here's what she said. She said they were considered the first empire in the world after defeating Thebes in the Egyptian dynasty in 1663. So think of the Egyptian dynasty, the Assyrians put that to end. <clears throat> they had scholars and studied many subjects, including medicine. They gathered literary works and put them in a library in Nineveh, including these two works, and some of you will know them, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Code of Hammurabi, which because they gathered those, we have an understanding of what was going on in ancient civilizations. They were a very organized government. They built and maintained roads throughout the empire, had soldiers at certain stations so that the roads were safe. They built canals and aqueducts for water transport throughout the empire. They had a huge and trained professional military machine. They used iron, knowledge to develop weapons, siege tactics that had never been seen before, like battering rams, siege towers, bows and arrows, slingshots, swords, spears, cavalry, foot soldiers, chariots, terror tactics. Those of you that are D&D guys, you know what these things are. I don't, okay? All right? They were ruthless. They were cruel. To the people they conquered, some surrendered, some nations surrendered literally without a fight. They saw them on the horizon and said, we're done. They burned crops and cities to the ground. And parents, you can explain some of this later to your children. And they were known for impaling those who rebelled against them. They used weapons for mutilating bodies of their enemies and their kings bragged about it this week going through the study it was amazing reading through the letters of the assyrian kings that have been collected about their victories and the detail by which that they did these very things when people were conquered the assyrians demanded high tribute and taxes to be taken from them and they deported people their exiles to all over parts of the empire including their young men and their young women, of which they did very immoral things with, that are detailed actually in the book of Nahum. This was an enormous empire with vast strength and intellect, military power and money. There would be um, no equivalent that we could possibly think of that was as brutal as Assyria was on the people that they exiled. Brutality was their strength and fear was their weapon. And no one, I mean, no one dared to stand against them. That is, until God intervened. In Nahum chapter 2 and 3, Nahum wrote about the coming destruction of Assyria by the hand of the Babylonians. What you'll read in those chapters is absolutely brutal. 
God told the Assyrians that basically in the same way that they had conquered and subdued other nations, they would be conquered and subdued. And because it is Family Sunday, I'm going to only quote portions that are a bit family friendly. Because there's a lot of gory details in this. And parents, if you want, depending on your kid's own uh, you know, age appropriateness, you can sit down with them, specifically chapter 3, and read some things to them and then explain it to them. would be best for them than to hear it from me first, because you're the parent, you can do that job as well, right? But here's a dose, just a dose of some things that Nahum talked about with the people of Assyria. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, <clears throat> he says that soldiers dressed in red were coming. Now, this is interesting because red was the Babylonian covers, colors. And the other piece that's really interesting is that Assyrians were known to be seen from a long distance because of the colors that they were riding with. So Nahum basically says, you're going to see a nation in red and they're coming after you just like other nations have seen your indigo blue coming and they laid down their weapons. You just need to know when you see that day, you're, you're cooked. And they're coming with chariots, they're coming with siege towers, they're coming and to, to, to burn their palace to the ground. In chapter 2, verses 9 through 13, he says their riches would be plundered and carried away. And he uses an interesting little phrase, the young lions would be torn apart. What's intriguing about that is Assyria's very first king called himself the great lion of Assyria. Do you see what Nahum's doing here? He's using a play on words to say, you know what we're gonna, you know what Babylon's gonna do? They're gonna take your kings and they're gonna devour them. They don't have a chance. And then chapter three begins with God's cry against the city and it reveals how he planned to disgrace them. But notice how it ends. It's funny because, you know, we read New Testament books and we like them because they end with grace and peace be multiplied to you, to our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Faith and love to you, you know, grace from the Apostle Paul. And we read that. And then we read this out of Nahum. And he basically says, there'll be no healing for your wounds. Those that hear about your demise, they're going to clap their hands and rejoice, especially the people that have, that have experienced your unceasing evil. And then the book closes. The oracle's done. And we go, well, what, how, how did this happen? Well, the good thing for us is, we have the lens of history. And history tells us how this prophecy played out. In 612 BC, a group of Medes and Babylonians captured Nineveh and completely desecrated it. In my study this week, I found this fascinating commentary. And here's what this writer wrote about this moment. He says, Nabopolazar the father of the great Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was instrumental in the final attack of Nineveh. And listen to this. And the, the description of his campaign is on the Babylonian Chronicle, which is now in the British Museum in London. You read about it. Here's what he wrote. I slaughtered the land of Assyria. I turned the hostile land into heaps and ruins. The Assyrian who since distant days had ruled over all the peoples and with a heavy yoke had brought injury to the people of the lands, his yoke I threw off. In particular, at Nineveh, a mighty assault against the city and a great slaughter was made of the people and the nobles. And if that weren't enough, Nahum in chapter 3 gives us a little poetic moment when he talks about the fact that what he's going to do to Assyria is basically hide them a little bit. It's going to be so bad, you're going to be hidden. 
You're going to go away for a while. So here's this mighty empire that he's basically saying, we're going to hide you in the ground. Interestingly enough, it wasn't until the 1800s that archaeologists finally found Assyria. Now do the math. 2,400 years. Twenty four hundred years. Now again, listen to Clive Anderson's commentary on 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 Nam when he says this. A Syriologist George Rowe wrote, "A glorious past was forgotten. In man's short memory of these opulent cities and mighty monarchs, only a few, often distorted, names survived. The dissolving rain, the sand-bearing winds, the earth-splitting sun conspired to obliterate all material remains." And the desolate mounds which conceal the ruins of Nineveh offer perhaps the best lesson in modesty, or another word for us would be humility, that we shall ever receive in history. Think about that for a moment when you think that America will stand forever. Think about that for a moment when you're building a new home and you're saying it's going to last for generations. Let, let this just settle for a moment. The mightiest nation on earth, completely eradicated and buried under earth, never found for 2,400 years, and some of the mighty king's names can't even be known. Now you can imagine, if you were living in Nineveh, and you're an Israelite, and you hear this oracle, that these brutal people are going to be eradicated. You can imagine knowing that your harmful captors are coming to an end and they will be swept aside what that would do to your heart. Right? It makes sense in chapter 1 when Nahum would write these words. Right in the middle of this whole thing on destruction, he writes, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Do you know where that verse is used in the New Testament? In Romans chapter 10 about preaching the gospel. In other words, this was good news to the people of God because they finally saw their captor being eradicated. Assyria, the great captor, was brought to destruction. Now, normally in our sermons here, what we do is we take a point, we explain it, then we apply it. What I've tried to do today is just put all of our application at the end because it all ties together, okay? So let's learn some things from this oracle of Nahum. And the first thing I think we need to learn is that when you read the book of Nahum, you need to recognize that Assyria is not our greatest captor. See, we read the stories of Assyria and we get sickened. We read these stories of Egypt before Assyria and when it sickens us, but they are not the ones who have been the most brutal upon the people of God. And let me, friends, let me just say this as well. The nation that you live in or the brutalities around the world are not the most, the greatest captor that is capturing the human race or the people of God. That's what you have got to see when you read the book of Nahum. Our sin and rebellion against God and our submission to the devil's rule in our lives is our greatest and most tyrannical captor. Israel, Assyria is just a picture of this. A small picture of this. 
And as much as the good news of Assyria's demise would have been to the people of Israel living in Nineveh, the greatest of all good news is the emancipating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. So if you ever wondered, is the gospel in Jesus in the Old Testament emphatically, yes, it is. Because in every moment of salvation you see in the Old Testament, it is a signpost pointing you ahead to the great emancipator, Jesus Christ, coming for his people. Don't miss that. All saving moments point us to the greatest day of salvation in the history of the universe when Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sin and and save us from the kingdom of Satan. As Graham Cook wrote, Nahum teaches us about the horror of sin and the love of Christ. It tells us about our helplessness and Christ's power. It reveals Satan's frailty in the face of God's true church. It also speaks of God's love for a broken world. So listen, if you're here this morning, you're the story about Assyria and all this brutality, you need to understand if you're not a child of God, you are underneath the most brutal master you could possibly ever be under. It's not your boss you're going to tomorrow morning that you think is giving you too many jobs. It's a sin that so easily has captured you. You are blinded by Satan to do his will. And the God of the universe this morning would say to you, the only way to be set free is to put your trust and your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived for you, died for you, and rose again from the dead. That's that's the main part of the story we must get. So that means also, listen, if you're a child of God and you believe those things, then friend, can I just ask you to, when you read Nahum, you should be saying, oh, how pleasant are the feet who brought me good news. How good it is that this news of the demise of my greatest captor has happened. Sin and Satan have no more claim on your life. And just like Assyria, they will one day be eradicated completely by the risen Christ. Right? You've got to see that when you read the book. The second thing that you've got to see is that God will always work for his people. Now it's interesting because we know why, we've studied this, right? We know why Israel is in Nineveh. It's because of their own sin. Their own rebellion got them there. Their own idolatry got them We don't know of any moment yet between Micah and Nahum that the people of Israel had a moment of repentance. Yet, what's happening in Nahum? God's coming. And isn't that the story of the gospel? That though your sins were as white as scarlet, he has made them as white as snow. That though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God through Jesus Christ, made you alive together. By grace you have been saved. The only thing that you brought to the salvation experience was a sin for which Jesus died for. God is coming. He is pursuing, like Hosea, going after that unfaithful bride. God is constantly coming. And He will do whatever it takes to capture our hearts. You've got to understand this about your God. He is so jealous for you and loves you so much, He will not allow another lover to capture you. So you know what He'll do? If your love is your bank account, oh, He'll gladly empty it. I know from experience. 
If sports is your thing, he'll rip it from you so bad that the moment you smell the the glove leather of a baseball glove, it'll make you vomit. I know that experience. And it's not fun. As God is eradicating idols out of my heart. God will do whatever it takes to capture your heart and turn your attention to him. Do you know why he does that? Because he loves you. He is after you. He will do whatever it takes to get your heart to turn toward him. And listen, what he'll do when your heart turns, and even as your heart is turning, is he will destroy all of your enemies and even use their stripped power and their wealth for your good. You know what's funny about the people of Israel is we have this beautiful history that we get to see, right? Um, we know the stories. If you know your Bible, you know some stories. In, 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 they were in Egypt for 400 years. God promised he would deliver them. They had a bad plague that came down on Egypt where they took the firstborn of everything. And the Egyptians said to them, you gotta get, you gotta get out of here. And the Egyptians basically gave them everything. They gave them flocks. They gave them money. They gave them gold. They sent them off rich. So they take all this Egyptian wealth and they run to the promised land. They get to the promised land and things get really good. They prosper and they forget their God. And God brings in the Assyrians. What do the Assyrians do? The Assyrians take all of the wealth that Israel had accumulated and they make it their own. And so they take all the wealth from the Israelites. Crazy. That started in Egypt, that landed in Israel, and now it's in Assyria. And then the Babylonians come and they take all the wealth of the Assyrians and they just rip it from them. That started with the Assyrians, it was with the Assyrians, then it was with the Israelites, then it started with the Egyptians. And then, after the Babylonians come, the Persians come, and they take over all of Babylonia, and they take all the wealth of Babylonia, which was in Assyria, which was in Israel, which was in Egypt. And do you know what the kings of Persia did for the people of God? They sent two men, Ezra and Nehemiah, that you can read about in your Bible, with Persian money to go back to rebuild the nation of Israel. Thousands of years later, the God of the universe who said, I will never leave you, I'm always working for you, and I'm intricately doing all things for your, for my glory and for your good, one day they build a temple with Persian money. And you think God can't work through COVID-19. And you think God can't work through your suffering. And you think God can't do something with communist China. And you think God can't deal with something with the Cold War. Your God is always working for his people. Always. And friend, do you see no greater picture of your God working for you than him saving you from the sin that you did and the wrath that you deserve? And it's because of Christ coming for you that God could declare to you in Romans 8, 28 that he will do what? He'll work all things together for your good according to his promise for those who are called, who are his, who are his people. God is always working for his people even if, listen, if it's longer than we think. Can we just... Friends, you live like 80 years. 
The people of Israel were in, they were in bondage for 400 years before they ever saw a deliverer. Persia did not give them money to go back for thousands of years. Do you see why the Bible is given to us? Let that just settle your hearts in a day of government craziness, financial uncertainty, and unknown lies from every facet of the world. God is always working for his people. Third lesson, God always opposes pride. It's crazy to think that the Nineveh that Naaman's talking about is the same Nineveh that another prophet reluctantly went to 150 years previous. His name's Jonah. Remember Jonah? Right? Repent. They didn't even, you know, like, what kind of message was that? Five Hebrew words, and the whole city repents and turns to the Lord, and God relents of disaster. That Nineveh humbled themselves before God, and God decided, I'm not going to eradicate them. This Nineveh, Nahum's Nineveh, who he prophesied of their demise was because of their pride. See, Assyrian pride was really hard to remove from their hearts. I would also add, American pride can be hard to root out from our hearts where it's not right. They trusted in their military prowess. Does that sound interesting to you? Their financial strength. Hmm, interesting. Their intellectual ability. Hmm. Their idolatrous worship of Ishtar. Well, we don't worship idols here. Right? Rather than staying humble before the God of the universe. Friends, what the book of Nahum says to us is, God opposes all pride. In nations... In churches, in individuals, in businesses, in celebrities, you name it. Don't, don't be fooled that because some show is popular that's braggadocious or some celebrity has all the followers that they are somehow being honored by God. Don't, don't be fooled by that. God opposes all pride. And by pride, I don't mean being proud that you attend a good church, you go to a good school. Or being proud about a well-done job or a successful business that you have built by the grace of God. By pride, I mean when we refuse to acknowledge our need for God and we think we can live life without God. Notice what you see in the book of Nahum. God eradicates a proud nation that nobody would touch. And you'll notice he does it. Every so often. It was Assyria, then it was Babylon, then it was Persia, then it was Rome. Where's Rome now? I mean, you get the point. God will eventually, in in all time, as nations are being devoured, God will eventually say, enough's enough, my kingdom is the only one that will stand. God always opposes pride. He will always, one day, right all wrongs. He will one day bring all just injustice to justice. And he will expose every last lie. Because God opposes pride. He will never let things go unchecked. He's always got an eye out for his people. Always. And he always fights pride and opposes it. And the last thing (coughs) is in exile... Keep your feast, 
fulfill your vows. And you see this in chapter 1, verse 15, in a very subtle, kind of odd way, as Nahum instructed Israel about the good news of the coming of Assyria's destruction. You almost feel the people of God say, okay, what do we do while we're waiting? Hey, hey, Nahum, so while we're living in exile, what do we need to do? Keep your feast. Fulfill your vows. Notice what he didn't say. Go storm the castle. Help out the Babylonians. Expose lies. Yell at the top of your lungs so somebody notices you. Notice how every day this is. Notice how mundane this is. Keep your feast, fulfill your vows. That means, daddies, fulfill your vows to your children by raising them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Singles, embrace your singleness for the glory of God and serve others for the glory of God. Married couples, love one another enough and love Christ enough that Jesus is the king of your marriage and you will do everything you can to display that glorious gospel to the world around you, right? What this means is just just be faithful in what you do. Be faithful to your God. In exile, remember who saved you. In exile, serve your God. Notice it's not flashy. It's right in the middle of one verse that rarely ever gets noticed. In other words, listen, when things are hard, don't forget whom you serve. When the Christian influence of your nation is not being heard or listened to, guess what? Don't yell and get angry. Keep worshiping your God and serve others and demonstrate and declare the gospel as God grants you opportunities. In other words, keep plotting day after day after day after day. Keep your feast. Fulfill your vows. Keep your eyes up to God and out toward others, knowing that your God is always working for you. Always. And he will one day make all things right. Your job is to not make all things right. That's his job. Your job is to keep your feast, fulfill your vows. See? Keep your feast. Fulfill your vows. Worship your God. Serve others. Christian, take a moment to just look to your Savior King. Born in a manger. Obeyed his mom and dad. Taught faithfully served others, did it all for the end of the glory of God and the good of your soul. What did he do? Kept his feast, kept his vows. What does he call you to do in this day and age that you live in? Keep your feast, fulfill your vows, right? And what Nahum has taught us, and he's taught us very faithfully, friend, your God, your God, this is your God. If you're a believer in Christ, this is your God. He is jealous and he will come after you. He loves you enough to not leave you alone. He will always work for your good. He will always execute justice on his enemies. He's always at work, even if it's not in the time that we want. Let's pray. Father, we are mindful this morning of how temporal we are and we need eyes to see the wonder of your long-term vision for all the things that you're doing. 
So open our eyes to see those things. Help us to see the gospel of Jesus and the church of Christ will prevail because you promised it would. And in the end, you will do everything that you have promised for the good of your people and for your great glory and the advancement of the gospel. So, Father, would you bring peace to our souls today? (laughs) Settle us down today. Help us to trust you more today because you you are more than trustworthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.